But if anyone expounds Judaism to you, do not listen to him. For it is better to hear about Christianity from a man who is circumcised than about Judaism from one who is not. But if either of them fails to speak about Jesus Christ, I look on them as tombstones and graves of the dead, upon which only the names of the people are inscribed. Flee, therefore, the evil tricks and traps of the ruler of this age, lest you be worn out by his schemes and grow weak in love. Instead, gather together all of you with an undivided heart. Well, the words that I just read to you come from an old church father by the name of Ignatius. Ignatius was a Christian writing in the very early centuries of the church, and he wrote that particular portion to a letter addressed to the Philadelphians. He wrote that to the church in Philadelphia. Now, obviously, when we talk about Philadelphia, we're not talking about the American city known for cheesesteaks and the eagles. But this was the name of a city in Asia, Asia Minor, Philadelphia, from the Greek for brotherly love. And it is one of the churches that Jesus himself addressed roughly 40, maybe give or take 70 years before Ignatius addressed them with his own letter. Jesus also addressed the church in Philadelphia. And as we can hear from Ignatius, one of the issues that he was dealing specifically with those in Philadelphia was Judaism. It was the evangelism of the Jewish faith, Jewish proselytes. It was obviously a big deal in Ignatius' day. And what we're going to find in our sermon text today is that it was a big deal even before that, earlier in the first century. So if you would, please get out your Bibles or turn your Bibles on, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3, and we are going to read verses 7 through 13 today. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. If you would, please follow along, for these are the very words of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the coming hour and trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown." The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new name, the new Jerusalem, which comes down, forgive me, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, last week, we looked at the church in Sardis, and one of the interesting things about Sardis was that they had no commendation. They only had condemnation. In other words, Jesus had nothing good to say to Sardis. 
But this week is the exact opposite. As we just read in the passage to Philadelphia, Philadelphia had no condemnation. In other words, Jesus had nothing bad to say about Philadelphia. He has only good things to say about them. But before we really break the text down, I think it's important just to notice what is hopefully obvious, and that is that the text is laced with Jewish references, with Jewish allusions, and by Jewish I mean specifically Old Testament Judaism. All throughout the text, we see language and terminology that is very familiar to anyone who is familiar with the Old Testament. For example, Jesus begins by identifying himself as the one who holds the key of David. The key of David. He who sits on the throne of David holds the key of David. But he goes on in verse 9 to talk about the synagogue. He uses a familiar phrase we'll get to, the synagogue of Satan. He discusses those who say they are Jews, but they are not. And then as he ends the letter, he goes on to describing these Christians as being the temple. The temple of God. And not only does he use the temple illustration, he furthers that to talk about the city of God which is in the Old Testament Jerusalem, but here he calls the New Jerusalem. So laced throughout this entire text are all of these references to the Old Testament. David and the temple and the synagogue and Jerusalem and the city of God. And so what do we do with all of these familiar language from the Old Testament. Well, as we will see before we really break into this, is that clearly what was happening in Ignatius' day was also happening in the church in Philadelphia earlier on. The church here was clearly experiencing some kind of persecution, some kind of open attack against them, specifically by the unbelieving Jews who dwelled in the region. It was the Jewish unbelievers who rejected their Messiah, who were continuing to worship in the synagogue, according to their Old Testament understanding, who were persecuting the Christians in Philadelphia and trying to call them back, if they were Jewish, to the ways of their fathers, to the old faith. And so Jesus writes this letter. Well, he doesn't write it, but Jesus gives John this vision to encourage the Philadelphians who are being persecuted by Judaism. And he writes this, he gives them this message to affirm their identity. In other words, it is the quote-unquote people of God persecuting the Christians. But Jesus wants them to see, no, you are actually the people of God. It is the Christians who belong to God, not the unbelieving Jews. This is a letter of affirmation and comfort. And so let's break it down a little bit. Let's look at Jesus' introduction, beginning in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This introduction is extremely important to understanding the rest of the text. I would argue more than any of the other churches we've looked at so far, this introduction is more relevant to the body of the text than any we have seen. Jesus describes himself from the get-go as being holy and true, and then he talks about how he holds the key of David. Well, where does that language come from? Well, it comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah chapter 22. 
And we won't read that entire chapter, but I can briefly summarize it for you. There was a man named Shebna, and he was an evil man. And he rose to power in Israel. And he, Shebna ended up becoming the steward of David's household. So he was sort of the overseer of David's house, the overseer, uh, probably the economics of, of David's house. So he had a lot of authority over the kingdom. He had a lot of authority in the king's house. And God judges Shebna. And what he does is he raises up a righteous man, Eliakim. And he tells Eliakim that I am going to judge Shebna. I'm going to cast him out. And you will take his place. And then the text says that I will sling the key of David over your shoulder. So what we have is we have this evil man who is sort of the ruler of the house of David. He decides who comes in, who comes out. He is the steward of the finances, many of the decisions. And God says that he has sort of a metaphorical key to David's household. And then he gives it to Eliakim. But how this is fulfilled now is we know that Jesus is the one who is enthroned on David's throne forever. The book of Acts tells us that at his resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of God in the metaphorical throne that he sits on in heaven as the resurrected and ascended king, Peter tells us, is the fulfillment of the throne of David. So Jesus is sitting currently on David's throne. He is the new David. He is the better David. He is now the king of a greater kingdom than David was. And so because he is David on the throne, the new and better David, he obviously holds the kingdom key. It is Jesus who decides who is part of his kingdom. It is Jesus who decides who gets to come into my house and sit at my table and who remains on the outside. And so Jesus begins this entire letter by reminding the church in Philadelphia that you belong to the kingdom of God. You belong to the people of God and nothing the unbelieving Jews have to say has any bearing on your status as a child of God. It is, as the text says, Jesus who holds the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Jesus decides who is it that belongs to David's house. Who is it that belongs to the king? And when Jesus makes that decision, no one can overturn it. If he kicks you out, you ain't coming in. And if he lets you in, no one's kicking you out. So do you see how right from the get-go, we have this incredible affirmation to the Philadelphians that you truly are the people of God, whether Jew or Gentile, no matter what the Jews say, I have opened a door that they cannot shut. I have invited you into David's household. And the Jews cannot shut that door, which I have opened. Jesus is the steward over his own kingdom. And what he says goes. And so from this introduction, he breaks into his commendation of the church. He tells them in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. What we just heard in the introduction, he repeats... I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So clearly, 
the church in Philadelphia is under some kind of turmoil, some kind of persecution, some kind of testing. Because Jesus tells them that even though they have little power, they have not denied his name. So that tells us that there was pressure to deny his name. There was pressure from someone in the culture to deny Jesus. And this pressure was so intense that it drained the church of its strength. And Jesus says, I know your works. I know your frailty. I know how difficult this has been. But in the middle of all of it, you have remained faithful to me. And that is why Jesus has opened the door to the kingdom to them. And so clearly from the context, and especially what we'll see in verse 9, this is Jewish opposition. The quote-unquote people of God are persecuting the Christians. But the Christians have remained faithful in Philadelphia. They have not surrendered. They have not bowed. And I have to say that this is a really important point for us to remember. One of the things that I have learned so much through the craziness of this year and the political turmoil of this year is just how easy it is for some people to fold under the pressure of a mob. It is very difficult to stand up to the mob. It is very difficult to stand your ground when you feel like the whole world is against you. And this is exactly what Philadelphia was feeling. The entire culture was telling them their way of life was wrong, their religion was wrong, and was persecuting them heavily. And this goes doubly, by the way, for the Jewish believers in Philadelphia. Because they were, as a a cultural um, uh, analogy that would be fitting here, would be like their version of an Uncle Tom. They were sort of an Uncle Tom. They were the ones denying their heritage, denying their people. While all of the rest of the Jews were continuing to worship according to the customs of Moses and were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and still waiting for their own Messiah, they had all of these Jewish Christians who were fraternizing with the Gentiles and worshiping with Gentiles and treating the Gentiles like, like, like fellow citizens. And they, were, they did away with parts of the law of Moses. They didn't believe that parts of the law of Moses were applicable because Jesus fulfilled them. And so we have Jewish Christians being persecuted by friends and family members and being treated as if they have denied their heritage, they have denied their faith, they have denied their very own people. The pressure must have been incredible for the Jewish Christian to capitulate, to deny Christ, and to join their relatives, to join their friends, to go back into their culture and continue life the way they had known it for hundreds and hundreds of years. But the text tells us they did not do that. They remained faithful to Christ. They affirmed that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the true anointed one. And they continued to worship him and they never denied his name. And so Jesus affirms them by saying, you see, that's what makes you part of the people of God. Not your heritage, not your skin color, your acceptance of Christ. And it is because of their works, it is because that they did not deny Jesus' name, he has opened the door to the kingdom to them. And that door no one will shut. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. This will help give us a little bit of an understanding of what Jesus is really getting at when he talks about opening the door to David's house to the Philadelphians.
What does this really mean more specifically? And I want us to see the incredible consequences of this, that the Philadelphians have had the door to David's kingdom open to them. And before we get there, just a reminder about the church in Philadelphia. So obviously there would have been a large contingency of Jewish Christians in this church because there was, there's clearly a lot of Jewish people living in Philadelphia at this time. There's enough for there to be synagogues and to be a, uh, an uprising of Jewish persecution. But at the end of the day, this is still a Greek city. This is, this is still a Roman-controlled city. And so no doubt, the church in Philadelphia would have had Gentile Christians in it as well. And so when Jesus is opening the door to David's kingdom, he is opening the door to Gentile Christians. In other words, he is saying that Gentile Christians who believe in Jesus' name are just as equal in David's kingdom as the Jewish Christians are. So this, is, this has incredible consequences here. And I want us to see Paul explain that better in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Paul addresses the Gentiles in Ephesus, giving a very similar message. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called, quote, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul addresses the Gentiles, and he reminds them of their physical carnal realities, as well as their former spiritual realities. He says that at one time, you were the uncircumcision, and the circumcised called you that. But who were the circumcised at that time? It was purely a fleshly circumcision. It was one made in the flesh by hands. So you were physically uncircumcised and you were physically outside of Israel. Physically you were a stranger to the covenants of Israel. You were a stranger to the commonwealth of Israel. And you had no salvation. You had no God and no hope in the world. And 13 is where it all changes. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So what has happened to the uncircumcised who were strangers to the commonwealth of Israel and who were strangers to the covenants and without God? By faith in Christ, through the blood of Christ, those who were far off have been brought near. So what does that make the uncircumcised? It makes them the circumcised. What does that make them who were strangers to the commonwealth of Israel? It makes them part of Israel. What does that mean to those who were far off from the covenants of promise? It grafts them into those covenants. So by faith in Jesus, because of what he's done on the cross, the uncircumcised Gentiles who were not Israel are now brought into, brought near. They are now part of Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, the covenants of promise. But he continues... Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. So do you notice how the whole Jew-Gentile distinction is obliterated by the blood of Christ and now there's a new man, there's a new person 
The, the hostility has been abolished. The ordinances have been abolished. And so Christ, by his blood, through our faith, has brought Jew and Gentile together into a new race, a new kind of person. So we can no longer look at them and speak of their physical uncircumcision or their physical circumcision. Those things just don't matter now. Verse 17 and he came and preached peace to you who were far off Gentiles and peace to those who were near Jews. You see, we all needed the same gospel. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then this is another key, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So how does Paul describe the Gentiles who have believed in Jesus? He describes them as saying, you are no longer aliens and strangers, but are now citizens. That's kingdom language. That's kingdom language. He's talking about people who used to not belong to this kingdom, who if they tried to get in would be considered illegal aliens, have now affirmed they've received true citizenship. They are not aliens. They are not strangers. They are citizens. They are citizens. And what are they citizens of? The household of God. In other words, taking us back to Revelation 3, Jesus, who owns the key to David's house, has opened the doors to believing Gentiles. Believing Gentiles by the blood of Christ are being ushered into David's house, into David's kingdom. That's Israel. They are being ushered into Israel, ushered into the covenants of promise, ushered into the commonwealth of Israel. They have been ushered into David's house. So they are the kingdom of God. They are part of the kingdom. They are part of the people of God. He continues... Verse 20, and they are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. That comes up in Revelation 3. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this in Ephesians 2 is a longer explanation, a detailed explanation of Jesus' brief words in Revelation 3. When Jesus opens the door to David's house, this is what is happening. He's saying that you have believed in me, my blood has purchased you, and that makes you part of the kingdom of God. And that makes you part of David's kingdom. That's what makes you truly part of Israel. Now, as we turn back to Revelation 3, why would this be so important? Because again, who is the one opposing them? National Israel. And why would national Israel be opposing them? Because they're not part of God's chosen people. Right? Only Israel is the kingdom of God. Only Israel belongs to David's house. Only Israel belongs to that great Abrahamic covenant of promise. It is the Jews who are still trying to keep Gentiles out that Jesus steps in and says, No, 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 no. I have brought you in. You are part of my people. You are part of the kingdom of God. I'm the one who's brought you in and no one can overthrow that because I hold the key to David's house. This is an incredible theological statement that Jesus is making here. But notice there's a negative side to this as well. There's a positive in that God has established believing Gentiles and believing Jews as being part of David's house, being part of the Abrahamic covenant, as being the new and true Israel. He has included them in. 
But he has also excluded some who nationally were once in. So he's grafted some in and then he's cut some out. It reminds me of in John chapter 8 verse 39 when Jesus speaking with the Pharisees questioned them. The Pharisees answered saying, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. According to Jesus, what makes someone truly a descendant of Abraham? It's faith and obedience, not nationality. So in the same thing that we have in Revelation 3 and Ephesians 2, where Gentiles are being included, Gentiles are being brought in, what we have then in verse 9 is God cutting some out. 9, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. So the Jewish people who are continuing to worship in the synagogues, Jesus says, because they have denied the Messiah, because they have denied me, they are not worshipers of Yahweh. Who are they worshiping? The devil. This is a phrase we've seen earlier in Revelation 2 with another church, the synagogue of Satan. All false churches are ultimately devil worshipers. If you're not worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping demons. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So because the Jews have denied their Messiah, because they have denied Christ, their worship is impure, it's false religion, and they go to the synagogue thinking they're worshiping Yahweh, but Jesus affirms the Philadelphians, you're worshiping Yahweh, they're worshiping Satan. Satan sits on the throne of that synagogue. And he tells them specifically that these national Jews, they say they're Jews, right? They're the ones coming in to the Philadelphians bragging, we're the people of God, we're the Jewish people, we're the chosen people. And what does Jesus say? No, they're not. They're lying. Now, how do we make sense of this? Well, here's how we make sense of this. Keep your marker here and turn to Romans chapter 9. Paul is also helpful on this very topic. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. The text begins with Paul lamenting all of these physical Israelites, these national Israelites, those who have been circumcised in the flesh but not spiritually circumcised, how they have all rejected Christ and they are not saved. But then Paul knows that that brings a little elephant into the room here. Because how could Paul claim that the Jews, that so many Jews are not saved when the whole Old Testament seemingly is about how God has elected these people and chosen these people and loved these people and given them covenants and promised to save them and promised to protect them. So Paul knows when I tell my listening audience that the vast majority of the Jewish nation is, a, is false and unbelieving, they're going to come back at me and say, well, that doesn't line up with Scripture because the Scriptures promised that all the descendants of Abraham would be saved. So how can you say that most of the descendants of Abraham are not saved when the scriptures say that all of them will be saved? And so Paul answers that question beginning in verse 6 of Romans chapter 9. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So how does Paul first answer the question, just because you're from Israel doesn't mean you belong to Israel. See how God has selectively cut some of them out? So what we have in Revelation 3 is we have a bunch of people who are physically descended from Jacob. They're physically descended from Israel. But they're not truly of Israel. Because what does Paul say? Just because you're from Israel doesn't mean you belong to Israel. So that's why these people who claim to be Jews, Jesus says, they're liars. They are not actually of Israel. They've come from Israel, but they do not belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham are necessarily his offspring. And then Paul proves this point. How does he prove this point? Well, by quoting the Abrahamic covenant from the very get-go. Verse 7, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Paul proves this point by saying, remember, the Abrahamic promise was technically to Abraham's descendants, but Abraham had two children right off the bat, and only one of them was part of the promise. God selectively cut Ishmael out and only accepted Isaac in the promise line. So what's the point Paul's proving with this? He's saying you already have room in your theology for people who are physically from Abraham, but they don't technically spiritually belong to him. You already accept that. And Paul's saying, I'm just telling you that that's happened at a grand scale. That all of these Jews who are physically from Israel have actually been cut out from true Israel. He makes this more explicit in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So how is Paul making his point? Here's what he's saying. Who is it that are the true children of God? It's not national Israel. It's not those of the flesh. It is those of the promise. It is whoever God has selectively covenanted himself with. And we know from Ephesians 2 and Revelation 3 that that includes Gentiles. So as we go back to Revelation 3, what does Jesus mean when he says that these people say they are Jews but they are liars? What he is saying is that even though they have a physical ancestry that goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are not truly Jews. They are not truly of Israel because it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise. So again, to reiterate, how is this so comforting for the Philadelphians? Because the national children of God are persecuting the Gentiles and persecuting the Jews for worshiping with the Gentiles. And what's Jesus' response? No, actually, the Philadelphians are the true children of God. National Israel is not. So he has not only grafted these Gentiles in, he has cut out these national Israelites who have rejected their Messiah. So Jesus begins with this commendation. He sees their works. He sees their perseverance in light of this persecution. He affirms them and he commends them. But then he continues to vindicate them. Because what does he say, finishing off verse 9, after saying that those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who are Jews but really are not, they lie, he says this, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. 
Jesus has promised vindication to the Philadelphians. He says, right now the Jews are telling you you're not really the people of God. The Jews are telling you you don't belong to Abraham. You do not belong to the household of David. And Jesus says, but I know you really do. I've opened the door and one day I'm going to make them admit it. There's a day coming when those who tell you you are not part of the people of God, I'm going to make them humbly bow down to the throne, which you sit with me. So they're bowing down at Jesus' feet from Philippians 2, and we are seated with Christ. And so they are bowing down to Christ and to us. They will bow down at your feet, and what will they do? Admit that I have loved you. He's telling them that their persecutors will one day have to give an account and have to confess we were wrong. They're the people of God. We're not. He's promised them in the resurrection, in judgment day, a vindication. And I can't imagine how encouraging that would be for this church who we already know is very weak right now. Jesus has affirmed their identity and he has promised them a vindication. He has promised them this vindication. By the way, this is more Old Testament reference. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 60 verse 14. This is what Isaiah says to a future glorified Israel. Right? So this is to Israel and we now know it's to true Israel. And this is what it says. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So Judgment Day is a fulfillment of Isaiah 60, where all of the church's persecutors will come and bow down at the church's feet, and they will admit, yes, Christ has loved you. They will admit, you are the true city of the Lord. You are truly Zion. They will see that they actually do not have right to claim the things that they are claiming. That they are the people of God. No, outside of Christ, you are not the people of God. He has promised them vindication by judging their enemies. But he's also promised them vindication by pr promising to protect them. He says in... Uh, verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So Jesus says, because you have already gone through a testing, you have already gone through a trial, your Bible might even say tribulation, because you have already gone through your own, I am going to keep you from the greater tribulation which is coming. And we know, while this, though this is disputed in the Christian church, that the great tribulation that the vast majority of Christians today think is something in our future is not. There is no great tribulation coming. The tribulation, the great tribulation of Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation begins by John saying, I am your partner in the tribulation. This was something that happened in the first century. Why? Because what sense would it make for Jesus to tell the Philadelphians, I'm going to keep you from the tribulation coming upon the whole world if that tribulation was something that they could not possibly be part of? Right? Jesus is not talking about a tribulation 2,000 plus years in the future. He's talking about a tribulation that will happen in their day. It will happen in their age. It will happen in their culture. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'm going to protect you from it. 
And that's why he begins in verse 11, I am coming soon. His judgment is coming. This great tribulation is coming. And we know historically that this was the judgment of Israel. As Rome destroyed the temple, as Rome crashed in on the Jews, and then there was great turmoil after that, and we slowly saw the demise of the Roman Empire. Judaism and the Roman Empire both began to die at this great tribulation. The whole world was tested. Now you might say, well, this, this can't be a first century thing because of that very phrase, right? He says that he will test the whole world. But I would encourage you to see in your Bibles how that phrase is used. The whole world is not a literal phrase that literally means every continent on the physical earth. And we know this because of the book of Colossians. Paul says that in his day, the gospel was bearing fruit in the whole world. That's what Paul says in Colossians. But what's the problem with that? The gospel was not bearing fruit in Antarctica in the first century. The gospel was not bearing fruit in South America in the first century. The gospel was not bearing fruit in Canada in the first century. So the gospel was not bearing fruit in literally the entire planet. But that phrase whole world is, is probably better translated as the whole known world. What they knew of the world. Their concept of the world. So when Jesus is telling these Philadelphians that a trial is coming on the whole world, he doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen in South America and Antarctica. But he means the whole known world is going to experience this tribulation, but not the Philadelphians. They've already proved themselves worthy. They've already been tested. They've already been tried. And they persevered. And so God is going to protect them from this great tribulation that is coming upon the world. So God has affirmed them. He has vindicated them. And now he's going to give them this admonition before he concludes. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Again, these are citizens of heaven. They are authorities, priests within the kingdom of God. So metaphorically, they are described as possessing a crown. But we must persevere. If we do not persevere in Christ, if we do not persevere to the end, we cannot expect to maintain our crown. So the only admonition he gives them is to keep holding on. They've been persevering. He says, keep persevering, keep that crown on your head, and wait until judgment. And then Jesus concludes, after affirming them, after vindicating them, and admonishing them, he now concludes with this. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So he, Jesus begins with his conclusion by reminding these Jewish believers that they will be the temple. You see, we are not waiting for a temple to be rebuilt in physical Jerusalem we have no interest as Christians any longer in any physical temple. What did we see in Ephesians chapter 2? The church is the temple. We are all being built. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles are growing into a living structure, a temple for the dwelling place of God. Uh, Peter uses this language in his epistles that we are living stones. Each Christian is a stone, a living stone that makes up the temple. The physical temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And you know what we say as Christians? Good riddance. Good riddance. We don't need a temple anymore. We are the temple. 
Christ has fulfilled the temple worship. Christ has fulfilled the rituals of the temple. And the Christian church now fulfills the temple itself. Because we are the body of Christ. And Jesus says that his body is the temple. We have no need of a temple anymore because Jesus is the temple and because we as his body are also the temple. But notice again, this is inclusion language. Gentiles are being brought into this Jewish language. Gentiles belong to the temple. They belong to the temple worship. More so, they, remember in the Old Testament, they were kept out of the inner courts. They had the outer courts, the, the courts of the Gentiles. But Ephesians 2 says that by the blood of the cross, that dividing wall has been abolished. So now the Gentiles are no longer the subgroup worshiping on the outside of the temple. They are the temple. They are pillars in the temple. You see this new identity these Gentiles have been giving? It's incredible. He goes on to encourage them in this conclusion by not only telling them that they will be pillars in the temple and that they shall never leave the temple. But he says, I will write on him the name of my God. This is an Old Testament language for belonging to God. That is why, by the way, when we read from Ignatius at the beginning, when he said, anyone who speaks without Christ, I consider him a tombstone and only that person's name is on it. What is Ignatius saying? He's saying the name of our God has not been written on it. The name of our God has not been written on them. So he's obviously taking language that was familiar in all of these apologetic settings. And he's saying the Jews think that they belong to God. The high priest had God's name written on him. The Jews have God's name written on them. He's saying, no, no longer. It's only believers who will have God's name written on them. So God says, I will own you. You will be mine and I will be yours. You will be the temple. And then he goes on. And the name, not just of God, but of the city of my God. Now, if you were to ask any Jewish person in the first century, what is the city of God? Know what they would tell you? Jerusalem. Zion. Jerusalem is the holy city. Jerusalem is the city of God. But Jesus says, kind of. Not quite, but kind of. You see, it's not the old Jerusalem that's the city of God any longer. But it's what? The new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven. So you see again how the Christian church has fulfilled more Old Testament language. Not only is the temple gone because the church is the temple, but Jerusalem is gone. Because the church is the new Jerusalem. We are the new city. We are citizens of a new Jerusalem. And it's not an earthly one that David built. It's one that God built that comes down out of heaven. The end of the book of Revelation talks about this in further detail. So you see, Gentile believers are being described as belonging in David's house. They are described as having God's name written on them. They are described as belonging to the temple. They are described as being citizens of the city of God. They are citizens of Jerusalem, just the new one, not the old one. Again, we're not concerned with old Jerusalem anymore. It might have awesome historical significance. I'm sure it would be great to go there and to walk the streets that Jesus walked and to be baptized in the waters where John the Baptist was baptizing people. I'm not saying there's no historical significance or spiritual significance to it. But it is not a special city. It is not a city that has some future glory. No, the city that has future glory is not earthly Jerusalem, but heavenly Jerusalem. Earthly Jerusalem... The earthly city of God was a type 
a foreshadow of the spiritual city of God, the greater city of God, which has been filled, fulfilled in Jew and Gentile believers coming together and making up the new kingdom, which is the door of David's house that Jesus has opened that no one can shut. You see, Jesus has taken all of this Old Testament language, specifically all of the language that identifies God's people, and he has fulfilled it in spiritual terms, and he has applied it to all who believe in him, Jew or Gentile. All of these things which used to belong to national Israel, Jerusalem, the temple, David's city, have now been turned and applied to believers in Christ no matter their heritage. They are the temple. They are citizens of the new Jerusalem. They have walked into David's house because Christ has opened the door. So what do we do with this text then? Well, this text is merely this important reminder of who God's people truly are. Who truly is the kingdom of God? Who truly belongs to God? Who are his elect people? Who are those who, as the Old Testament says, have, are the apple of his eye? Who has he set his love and affection on? And I'll tell you, your skin color doesn't matter when answering that question. Your heritage doesn't matter when answering that question. But Jesus has opened the door only for those who have kept his name. It is believers in Jesus who have been grafted into the Abrahamic promise. It is believers in Jesus who are the elect, who are the redeemed, who are the special possession of God. It is the church who is true Israel. It is Christians who are truly inwardly Jewish. It is the church that is the new Jerusalem and Christians who are citizens of this new Jerusalem. It is the church that is the temple of God. You see, it is believers in Jesus who are the people of God. It is believers in Jesus who make up his kingdom. It is believers in Jesus who sit in David's house and eat at the throne table of David because Christ Jesus has fulfilled that and brought us into it. So what I am reminding you is that you are not saved by works of the law, nor are you saved by your heritage. But you are saved and brought into the kingdom of God by faith in Christ Jesus alone. I conclude with Ignatius again. Near the end of his letter to the Philadelphians, he says this, The Old Testament priests too were good, but the high priest entrusted with the Holy of Holies is better. He alone has been entrusted with the hidden things of God, for he himself is the door of the Father, through which Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets and the apostles and the entire church enter in. All these come together in the unity of God. But the gospel possesses something distinctive, namely the coming of the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, his suffering and the resurrection. For the beloved prophets preach in anticipation of him, but the gospel is the imperishable, finished work. 